Tonight we continue together at Church of the Cross in our sermon series which is entitled Love Unpacked and Unleashed, rooted in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We spent some time at the beginning of this series looking at the supremacy of love, at love as the way beyond comparison, or the way that we want to seek above any other way, the way of true human life. And then we've moved on since turning to verse 4 of chapter 13 to unpack the fruits or the nature of love. And our goal in this extended meditation at this community of focusing on love and unpacking love is not to be academic, but it's actually to seek to grow as people of love and as a community of love, knowing that this is ultimately our calling as the church, as the people of God gathered in Jesus' name. It is to grow, to be known for, uh, to shine the light of love to the world around us. And so that's our goal for this time together again tonight, that we would come away from here and we'd grow in this way of love in our lives. Paul says in verses 4 and 5 of 1 Corinthians 13, love uh, does not boast, it is not arrogant, it is not rude, or it does not behave shamefully or act shamefully would be a more literal translation of the word that's translated rude. And the strand that unites these three negatives about what love is not, that unites them together, is pride. Or as C.S. Lewis, who I'll draw from some tonight, rightly called the great sin in his classic Mere Christianity. So when Paul says that love is not these three things, it's another way for Paul to say that the Christian spirit of love is a humble spirit or a lowly spirit. The opposite of being proud. So the proud person is always measuring himself against others in order to demonstrate his own superiority. He is more eloquent, more gifted, wealthier, holier, more spiritual than the person over there. And this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. And for the proud man or the proud woman, being better is a kind of validation stamp upon his or her own life. Since I'm at the top of whatever scale it is that's important to me, beauty, popularity, the culinary arts, duck hunting, mountain climbing, board game playing, you can fill in the blank, we could go on and on. But Since I'm at the top of that scale, then I'm okay or I'm valid. For the proud, it's not enough to do a job well, but we must do it better than our neighbor. It's not enough to be a gifted musician. We must be a better musician than that man or that woman over there. So as Lewis says, he says, pride, quote, pride is competitive by its very nature. Now, let's be clear. Competition is a necessary part of our world, from Little League to business. Competition itself is not inherently evil. It's okay to be better or worse at something than someone else. That, in fact, is just a fact of life, right? That's really just the truth. We're better at some things than some people, and we're worse at some things than some people. It's okay to compete and win in this world, and it's okay to compete and to lose in this world. But here's where the rub comes. Pride links the winning and losing the being better or the being worse at something, whether it's poetry or ping pong or piano playing or politics or praying or parenting, and yes, that is alliteration. (laughs) It links one's value to these things or importance or dignity to being better at or winning at something. It's a subtle, really subtle, but significant shift that all of us are prone to making in varying degrees. And I say in varying degrees uh, uh, purposefully because pride can be quite a bit more subtle than just, oh, I want to be the best, and if I'm not the best, then I'll not be okay. 
Probably most of us don't live our lives like that most of the time. Certainly sometimes we do. Sometimes we feel that way. But more often we're a mixed bag, if we're honest, in looking at our own hearts. And our sense of value and worth may be fueled in a large part by what God declares about us. It might, but it might also be in part, kind of like the reserve fuel tank of a car, deriving from how we stack up with our peers in whatever area is important to us. And when that is the case, as it was for the Corinthians, in whatever degree, then we spend a lot of our lives making sure that we stack up well. Sometimes working in an inhumane way to prove to others that we've got what it takes to survive, to make it to the top. Or putting on facades of happiness or success that we want others to believe about us or that we think we need to believe about ourselves. Or very subtly, just name dropping to show that we're somehow important, significant, And so that others would recognize that and so on. And we do all of these things because at some level, our sense of worth, some bit of our sense of worth, our sense of validity is riding on how well we stack up to people around us. This I would put to you as the underbelly of pride. And the problem, therefore, the problem with pride in relation to love becomes quite clear. In a world dominated by pride or a life dominated by pride, others become competitors on the playing field of human value and dignity. And competitors are to be beaten or surpassed. Lewis again says this, quote, pride always means enmity. It is enmity, end quote. This works like this. If I'm proud of being funny, which by the way, I'm not, but if I'm proud of being funny, then when someone funnier moves into my neighborhood, that person becomes my rival. I must be better than him. And when I'm not better than him, when he outdoes me in humor, then I'm riddled with envy, as we looked at a little bit last week with Sam. And when I am better, when I, when I do outshine and outdo him, then I become bloated with pride. And then life can become one big seesaw ride between these two dynamics in our lives, depending upon where we find ourselves at the moment. We, we all know a little bit of what this feels like. And in either case... Love is squeezed out of my life. In love, the other is not my competitor or my rival on the field of human dignity, but rather a person made in the image of God who is worthy of my respect, goodwill, and benevolence in thought, word, and deed. Love is fundamentally not competitive. It does not boast or get puffed up, as Paul says in these verses in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not full of itself. Because the goal of love is not the elevation of oneself over others, but the elevation and blessing and goodwill of another, oftentimes at expense to myself. It's not looking to surpass or be better than the other, but with whatever gifts and natural endowments and abilities and skills that we have or that we've been trained with, it's to use those things to serve and to bless and to good to another. And that's a massive difference. A massive difference. So the Christian spirit of love then is not proud, but is a humble and a lowly spirit. And a humble spirit is basic to the Christian life. Jesus said it like this in his most famous sermon, opened it with these words, Matthew 5, verse 2 or 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the key question for us to wrestle with practically in light of this, then, is how do we grow in humility? 
How do we begin to have this kind of a humble, lowly spirit in our lives? How do we renounce and reject pride to which all of us are quite prone to possess a lowly spirit that we might love? And as we seek to be practical, I want to give you a threefold progression necessary for humility. Perspective, gratitude, and allegiance. And while I do think there's something sequential about these three things, it's also true that they're dancing around one another all the time in lived experience and life. So we don't want the boundaries to be held too tightly. But firstly, perspective. Perspective. The proud glory in their strengths, their relative strengths, gifts, and passions. They look down on others. But in our pride, our frame of reference is always wrong. Always wrong. The proud are like the five-year-old t-ball player who, having risen to prominence in his t-ball league, is boasting among his peers about his power at the plate. And then all of a sudden, David Ortiz, the Red Sox cleanup slugger known as Big Poppy, walks onto the scene. And the posturing and the positioning and the boasting of this young boy is now over. Because he and all of his friends' attention and wonder and awe is quickly and rightly transferred over to Big Poppy, who stands now in their presence. The key step in humility is reckoning with the presence and reality of an almighty, all-knowing, eternal God who made us and all that we see, and then measuring ourselves rightly in relation to him. Not in relation to those others around us, but in relation to him. And then relative to him, we begin to see, as we see him for all that he is, we begin to see for a moment that that all of our greatest accomplishments are baby steps. And our greatest intellectual feats are basic arithmetic. And our most advanced medical progress and advances and techniques are like applying a band-aid. You know, we've taken centuries to master nature relatively through technology. It's God himself who says, be still, and the storm is quiet. Relative to God, we are nothing. A mere breath, like the grass or flower of the field that shines one day and fades away the next. These are biblical illusions. And we saw this in the psalmist, this kind of perspective as we read earlier, who cries out, may those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. And then the next words out of his mouth, but I am poor and needy. This perspective is central to the humble. But let me make one more point on this question of perspective and say that this kind of lowliness compared with the almighty God could exist even in our unfallen state. That is, even Prior to the fall of Adam and Eve, we could say these things and they would be true. But when we add sinfulness to the mix, when we add into this equation the fact that we are muddied and polluted and divided and turning our attention to lesser gods and and longing for those things, putting our affections on those things, then our lowliness before God is intensified all the more. He is holy. And we are not. When Isaiah encounters God in all of his glory in chapter 6 as we read tonight, his first response is to bemoan his sin, his uncleanliness in the presence of one so pure and so bright and so holy and so true. And Peter does the same thing as we read about in Luke chapter 5. When he sees the glory of Jesus in this miraculous catch of fish, his first word is, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. 
The perspective of the humble rightly acknowledges our position in the world vis-a-vis God himself, which brings us low, down from our self-made thrones of self-exaltation to lie literally flat on our face before him. And this being flat on our faces in our smallness and in our sinfulness. By the way, I know this isn't a popular message in our culture today at all. But it's this place of lying prostrate before God on our face that is the only proper place before the living, almighty, triune God. And every genuine encounter with this God in one way or another, leads us there to fall on our faces before him. So perspective, but then there's gratitude because as important as perspective is for humility, and we reinforce this week after week in this tradition with our liturgy as we confess our sins and we spend that time in silence, and that's why we encourage kneeling because we're expressing this kind of nothingness before God or our pollution before him. But true humility doesn't stop there. If it did, the Christian church might simply be a place of weeping and of gloom. But it's a community of joy, fundamentally a community of joy. And that joy arises from an overflowing gratitude at the love, grace, and generosity of this great God toward us. And the generosity is firstly and chiefly God giving us himself, his own self. Because though we are small, though we are tainted, and though we are on our face before him with no claim on his kindness, but rather only claims on his judgment, on his severity. God then comes among us. God reaches out. Often in the scriptures, as people encounter God, they fall flat on their face. And what you see, like in Revelation 1 with John, is that Jesus reaches out and puts his hand on him. And the ultimate picture of God reaching out and putting his hand on us is the sending of his son in the flesh. To come among us. To walk through what we walk through. To experience what we experience. And ultimately then to die the death that we were meant to die. That we might live the life that he means for us to live. And in so reaching out, God enables us then to share in his life and his love. In the fullness that we were created for. And then God, and not the validation that we think will come from being the best lawyer or the best teacher or the best parent or whatever. The validation is what we ultimately want and need because it's a validation from the eternal supreme being of the world to us, his creatures. Saying, I love you. You belong with me. Don't be afraid. Come be in my life. Come be in my person. The gift of himself, God's gift of himself to you and to me, gives us all the validity, all the worth, all the dignity that we could ever want or ever hope for in our lives. We are the beloved children of the great king. And all that we in our pride are scrambling to attain by our own meager efforts is given to us freely and gloriously by the love of God in Christ. The humble then rest in him as their refuge and rely upon him as their strength, overflowing with gratitude for his great gift of himself to us. And he not only gives us himself, but he also gives us 
the gifts and the endowments that we now enjoy, which are not a result of our own industry or brilliance. We've come now to understand through this perspective and therefore something for us to boast in or to gloat in or to hold ourselves above others in. But we now see them as what they were always meant to be seen as, which is gifts from God given to us, entrusted to us as stewards, not as owners who can take pride in what we have, but as stewards who have received these things on loan from our Heavenly Father and are now meant to be used not to exploit the situations we find ourselves in or the people that we find ourselves around so that we might sustain through these gifts an identity for us that we've made of our own effort. But they're now meant to be used freely to give glory to God and to serve others around us with all that we've been given. The mind of the humble, the mind of the humble is not merely filled with an awareness of our lowliness, but is, it is filled even more with a vision of God and his love and generosity toward us. The focus of the proud is on themselves and on their gifts and their endowments relative to others. The focus of the humble is upon God in his grandeur and generosity. This focusing upon God and not trying to be humble is the quickest way to progress on the path of humility. Lewis again wrote this, the humble man will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. The humble will be thinking about God and dwelling upon God and all that God thinks about them confers upon them. His eyes will be fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith and overwhelmed with gratitude as the pressure under pride to be somebody will be undone. It'll be popped and joy will flood into the heart of one who's been set free. The third phase then is the final phase of having gained perspective and having been flooded with gratitude and joy. The humble have an unwavering allegiance to this great king. Won for us by an encounter with his love and grace. God lifts us up to him. He gives us what we sought and sometimes still seek to find in our pride. And he wins us over, not merely as our benefactor, but as our Lord, as our King. The one whose will that we seek to follow at every turn. The humble, overwhelmed by gratitude, give to God their absolute allegiance in that gratitude. There is no more humble prayer than we can find than the one that we find on the lips of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays, not my will but yours be done. That is a prayer of humility. It is prideful to go our own way, to be our own boss in a world that God has made where God reigns. Humility says, no, you're the Lord, you're the King, and I yield my will to yours. And as we yield our will to God's, God then leads us on the path of humility even further. By his example and by his words, because when he came to the world, he took on flesh, he took the form of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient to the, to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in his fleshly life, God scorned all human glory that is so important to us in our pride. He said no to all that we naturally prize, and he authenticated and declared to be the truly human life 
That life which doesn't strive to get to the top, as a prideful life will do. But that life which seeks to get to the bottom. Becoming a servant to all, even to one's enemies. Jesus embodies this in his own example and he calls us to this by saying, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. So then offering to him our allegiance and saying not my will but yours means that we will develop in our lives in a very real way a posture of servanthood to our neighbors near and far. That having been filled to overflowing because of God's love, our neighbors no longer become competitors that we're trying to defeat, but rather people worthy of love, radical love, sacrificial love. So perspective, gratitude, and allegiance. Key aspects and phases in the heart and the spirit of humility. My question then simply as we close is, are we growing in these things? I wonder, where are you tonight? And let me ask you just a few questions as we close. Are you enslaved by pride? Still competing, still proving? Or are you free? Free to be the man or the woman that God has made you to be. In his image, uniquely you, with the gifts and the abilities and the endowments that he's given to you. And with those things, to love your neighbors. And to see them as those worthy of your love, your care, your attention, your focus, and your time. Do you recognize your own smallness, your sinfulness before the living God? And does this drive you to your knees in any real way? Or do you cling, however desperately, to some sense of self-respect and see yourself as a cut above, as worthy of the praise of those around me? Does gratitude toward the God who loves you, who gave himself for you, and who gave himself to you, Does this gratitude fill the horizon of your heart and of your mind? Or is it still filled, that horizon still filled by you and your pursuits and ambitions and plans to prove to the world that you are somehow worthy? Have you surrendered to this Jesus, this King, as Lord? Or do you hold back parts of your life, whatever treasured parts those might be, from his Lordship and his rule? I would put to you that to grow in these areas of perspective and gratitude and allegiance and humility, there is no better place to be. And we're all growing in these things. None of us have arrived in these things. But there is no better place to be than in the midst of God's people and in the midst of God's word. Where we might truly encounter God in his greatness, God in his generosity, And God in his demands, which are not demands to diminish us, but are offerings to flourish us as his children. And that placing ourselves around others where this God is being proclaimed, where we see him in one another, shining through one another, is perhaps the best way that we can continue to grow along this path of humility, learning to surrender our will to his and then to become those who love as he has loved us. You know, we can remain in our pride. We can remain in the rat race. We can remain trying to prove something and show our validity. But as we do, we will not find life. We will find misery. And that story and testimony is legion in our world. There will be mounting pressure 
to maintain the version of ourselves that we love for others to believe. And there will be the ability quickly to distort ourselves and others. And in that path, we'll not be able to love, at least not consistently, not Christ in a Christ-like fashion. The invitation of God to you and to me is to come out of that way. To join the ranks of the humble, the lowly, the poor in spirit, to whom life itself, God himself, is given without measure. And that gift works in us joy and gratitude and allegiance that empower us by the Spirit of God at work in us to truly love, to love our neighbor, to love as God has loved us. Amen.